Amos is, uh, well, it's kind of a scary book to preach. In fact, at Bible college, uh, some of the other students and, and, and amongst other pastors, it's, it's garnered the, uh, uh, the nickname or, or whatever, the, uh, the career killer. Uh, <laughs> if you really don't like your job, uh, you can always preach Amos. And sure enough, you'll be finding a new one fairly soon. And, and here's the thing. Amos goes in and he, he talks about stuff that makes us uncomfortable. And, and, it, and it really pokes at us in the wrong way. And so because of that, it, it garners this, uh, this reaction. I guess we, so we don't like it. But I think God gave us Amos because we need to hear what he has to say. Sometimes God needs to make us uncomfortable. Sometimes God needs to shine his light of righteousness into our lives and show us what he expects so that we can get our lives back on track. Sometimes he needs to show us where his heart is and and really how we as a people and as a society and as individuals miss that. And so I'm going to challenge this. I tell you, when I studied through Amos, there was a lot of times where I was not comfortable wiggling around in my chair like, oh, this is not easy to hear, but I encourage you, don't put the walls up today. Here, understand, this is a God who is righteous and loving and kind and good. And, and do your best to just listen and hear what Amos has to say for us. What does this loving God have to say to this very brave prophet? And so, here we go. Amos begins, all of them, chapter 1, verse 1. This, all the minor prophets really begin this way. They give you the introduction. What is it like? It says, this message was given to Amos, a shepherd from the town of Tekoa in Judea, Judah. He received this message in visions two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, was king of Israel. Now, from that beginning, there's some things that we can pick up and, and other things. We know the author was Amos. Okay? He was a shepherd. In fact, we find out later he wasn't just a shepherd, but he's a rancher. And the, and the word for shepherd was he wasn't just a guy that worked in the field. He was a guy that owned the fields. Like he owned uh, at least 100 sheep. That's the, the title that was given to him. So he was a rancher. And he was also a farmer. He was a guy that helped dress uh, these uh, fig-type trees. And uh, so he had... He had uh, operations in farming and ranching would have been fairly successful. Uh, the time that he wrote this was 760 to 750 B.C. For those of you who are, are really astute, you'll remember, hey, wasn't there another prophet that we've already studied that wrote during that time? Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, we had Hosea, and Hosea begins writing at this time as well. Now, Hosea's ministry continues on much further, but, uh, but Amos begins writing. Uh, around the same time. And he too, just like Hosea, is writing to the northern kingdom. Now, he was from the southern kingdom, unlike Hosea, but God sends him to the northern kingdom uh, to bring this message. Now, the historical background, since it was a similar the time of, of Hosea, is what you have. is a time of great material and political prosperity. Uh, Jeroboam II was the king of Israel and, and the northern kingdom, and he was the most successful of the northern kings of Israel. And if you read Second uh, Kings 15, you see this succession of military victories that Jeroboam brings. He, he expands the influence of Israel far further north than had been previously expanded. And as far as south and east and west, there was security on their borders. At the same time, um, Uzziah was king of, of Judah, and that was also a great time of prosperity 
for them. And it references in there an earthquake two years after this takes place. And this is what happens two years after Amos receives this, this vision. And he, he brings it up to, to the northern kingdom. Is that Uzziah, the king, was so pompous, so full of himself, thinking that he was so good that he, was, he could bring an offering himself before God. And so he marches up into the temple. This is in Jerusalem. This is the southern kingdom. And the king goes in to the holy place. And only the priests of Levi were, were allowed to be there. The sons of Aaron were allowed to be in that area. And the priests stop him and they say, you can't come in here. And his eye says, I can do whatever I want. I'm the king. And then what he does, with the priest saying this is not good, is he goes in and he tries to bring an offering to God in the Holy of Holies. And what happens is, is there is a massive earthquake. So big is the earthquake that 15 miles away, there's a big old mountain and a big chunk of it fell off. And archaeologists have found, they're like, wow, this is pretty amazing. And it, what happens too is the temple is just rocked and it, and it breaks apart. And this beam of light of sun comes in and shines on Uzziah. And what happens is, is the priests could see in there that he had leprosy. And he got leprosy from that. And the priest said, you have to leave. And he does. And he goes and he lives the rest of his life in his little palace outside of town and uh, loses all of his power and uh, dies uh, alone in his palace because you don't mess with a holy God. And the thing that's amazing about that is, of course, archaeologists and historians, even those that uh, came much later, Josephus, write about this particular earthquake. It was a big deal. It was not just a a rendering of a temple. It was a judgment on a nation. And that's what happens two years after this (laughs) takes place. So you could see the, the, the climate that Amos is writing in. It was a time of great prosperity, but as prosperity comes, so often does moral and religious depravity. The nation was thought, we're so good, we are so safe, and they let their morals become lax. They started to worship other gods. They started to to let their worship of the true God become contaminated. And God sends Amos to the northern kingdom, and basically he sends them this message, you are going to be judged. And that's, that's a big deal. So there's the outline. If you read through the book, there's uh, basically five sections to it. The first one is the roar of judgment. God steps up at the very beginning and he roars like a lion. And I don't know much about lions and how they hunt, but from all of the books that I've read about lions and studying of this, says that before they hunt, before they, they're going to give a loud roar, and that paralyzes their prey because it terrifies them. And then he rips them to the shreds. And that's... What God starts out with at the very beginning is the roar. The hunt has begun. And then there's a judgment against the nations. And God talks about the nations all around Israel and the judgment that he's bringing to them because he's God of the world. And then he brings it like a noose tightens up and he talks about his judgment against Israel. And then he gives five reasons for judgment, why he's doing this. And then after those five five sections, there's... Yeah, and show those reasons. It begins as like its own little section and has a, a beginning and an end of the five reasons. And then he has five visions of judgment that he gives Amos as to what's going to happen because the people have not been just. And then at the very end, because our God is merciful and wonderful, he talks about a restoration that's going to happen after the judgment. Something that is totally not deserved, but something only God can do. 
the purpose of this book, of course, is to pronounce the national judgment. Amos was given this book to go to the northern kingdom, not as a, as a message of hope, but a message of judgment. You've been found wanting and you will be destroyed. The second reason is to produce individual repentance. Even though the nation was going to be judged and that was already a done deal, God had sworn by himself this will happen. He says, but you as a person, you can still turn. There's still time for you. It's to produce personal repentance. And the third one is to prophesy an ultimate restoration. To speak of a time when eventually God would come and His mercy would, would come and His grace would come and He would restore a remnant. And to let the people know that despite judgment that there is, God is still loving and there is still hope for the people. Now, uh, the, perp- the theme of this whole book is justice. If you want to see a book in the Bible that talks about just, what is just, what is right, <laughs> this is the book. That's what uh, really it comes down to is the people... We're no longer just, but God is a God of justice. Now, some other things that are going to be helpful for you to understand the book of Amos. Uh, in the time that that happened, the geopolitical world worked differently than it does today. Back then, you had city-states and small governments, small countries. And this is what would happen. If you were a small town or a little city, uh, you had a hard time protecting yourself. Maybe you didn't have the money to put up a wall around your town or to have your own little militia or whatever. So what you would do is you would go to a larger city or a larger government, find that king, and then you would sign an agreement with that king. And that king uh, would, would uh, basically become your protector. And uh, there would be a very, it would be drawn out uh, with uh, a lot of... Uh, uh, you know, it's all legal. Uh, it'd be a covenant between the two of you. What it would say is, we, the people of this town, agree to abide by these particular rules, which the sovereign basically gets to say what these things are. And then that king would basically say, if you do those things, and these are the ways that I'm going to protect you. And, and so this is how the people of that time in that culture understood uh, this this whole political thing to work. And it wasn't necessarily bad. It's just the way that it, that it happened. But it, we'll see, it's one of those, those vassal states, if they didn't keep the terms of the covenant, in the covenant that was written there, it would spell out exactly what would happen to them. And that king would come in, that sovereign would come in, and would destroy them, or would do certain things. Well, Amos writes this book in such a way that it talks about the covenant of God being this, this way. And the people of Israel are underneath the protection of God the Almighty, the Sovereign. And they have violated the terms of the covenant. And he spells it out very clearly how they have violated those things and now this Sovereign was going to come in and do what she was um, contractually obligated to do because they didn't keep their their part of the deal. So it helps to understand that. And for us, because we don't live in a state like that, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. But understand, that's how it worked back then. And so that's why... It is written that way. Okay, so the very beginning, the roar of of judgment. We start the book out, and this is what it says. This is what he saw. This is Amos and heard. The Lord's voice will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. Interesting, because this is a message to the northern kingdom. But God is saying, this is my real temple of worship. (laughs) This is where it's supposed to be set up, is in Jerusalem. And this is where judgment will come from. Which, if you were from the northern kingdom, that would rub you wrong just right there. But God is saying, I'm the one true God and I am where I say I'm going to be, not where you tell me I'm supposed to be. And I'm going to roar and you're going to hear me. 
And the lush pastures of the shepherds will dry up and the grass on Mount Carmel will wither and die. And he talks about how this roar, if you look at geographically how the roar goes out, it starts close to Jerusalem. And then he starts naming cities that are further and further away. And it's like this roar kind of comes across the, the, the land and it dries up everything before it just kind of shrivels and dies. And it goes all the way out. It just continues. It's a massive and a powerful roar of a powerful God. God was getting ready to do judgment and, and he was going to bring wrath. Now, in that section, you're going to read some things um, um, that he talks about who he's bringing judgment then against the different nations. And, and in this section where he talks about the different nations, there's a phrase that's used oftentimes. It says, for three sins, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Now, that's what he's talking about. Uh, it's a way of putting punctuation on how bad they have, they have gone wrong. And sometimes God actually tells them all seven sins that these nations have done <laughs> that this is why he's bringing judgment against them the idea is this you have sinned completely for three and also for four right it's not just like I, there's like one small thing uh, seven three plus four is a big number in the bible it is completeness you have you have sinned yourself to completeness your sin is now full and it lists them and usually the sin that is then listed or named is the worst the worst offense of all of them and so you have this roar of judgment and it comes down to different nations and he starts out with with ones that are far off and you can imagine the people of israel would get like a tepid response like they would say okay yeah it's good to judge those people but it gets closer and closer in fact he lists seven nations that he's going to judge. The first is Damascus, which, uh, which would be the enemy of Israel. They just didn't like those people, right? They were like, these were, these were our, our, our enemy. It goes to Gaza, which was a natural rival. Then to Tyre, which were a little bit uncomfortable because these are trade partners. They're not our friends, but they're, they're trade partners. In fact, a couple centuries earlier for, for Israel, you, you had this king who married a gal from Tyre. Her name was Jezebel. I don't know if you may have heard that name before, but that's where she came from. She came from that place. And so there was a, a trade pact between Israel and this seafaring nation. And when God brings a judgment against them, they're like, whoa, you know, maybe we don't want to make them too upset. But God gets a little closer. Then he starts listing off those that are biologically related to Israel. Talks about Edom and Ammon and Moab and finally Judah to their southern border. And God brings, and he talks about how each of these nations has sinned against him. Now, the first six, he talks how they violated the, the covenant against, with Noah. When the people got off the boat and God set a covenant with humanity, he said, you're going to live this way. And these people didn't live that way. They didn't respect life. They didn't respect other people. And they certainly didn't respect God. And God said, that's enough. And he's going to destroy them because of that. He gets down into Judah. This is a covenant people and says, you know what? Just because you're my people doesn't mean that you can act poorly. But here's the idea. God's roaring from Jerusalem and he says, everybody gets judged because I'm a God of justice. He doesn't play favorites. If it's right, it's right. If it's wrong, it's wrong. It's pretty black and white to God. And just because, just because you think that you're close to him and maybe we really are close to him does not give us license to live loose lives. And he's showing us this. And so the people of Israel going through the section would feel like this surrounding thing of judgment. There is nowhere to escape the justice of God. God's justice is universal and he's going to bring justice to this world. And then 
He says, this is what the Lord says. The people of Israel have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. And he begins the section of judgment against Israel. And uh, some of the things that they've done, they, they, they broke a covenant with God. That's one of the first things he talks about. He says in Amos 2, 7, 8, they sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample the helpless people in dust and, and shove the oppressed out of their way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. And the religious festivals, they lounge in clothing. Their debtors put up for security, which, by the way, was against God's law. It says, in their house of gods, they drink wine bought with unjust fines. These are a people that on the outside look like they have it all together, but the reason they look so good is because they're oppressing other people. They are breaking God's covenant. And God said, I've had enough of this. He also says that they had, they had economically oppressed other people. They were immoral. They had betrayed Him. They were hypocrites. And they were arrogant. And so at the very end of that section, He says this. He produces judgment. He says, so I'm going to make you groan like a wagon loaded down with sheaves of grain. What a great picture. This is something that's just so heavy, so burdened with the weight of this sin that just moving it makes it just creak and it's just going to fall apart any moment. God is going to heap upon the people the full weight of their injustice. And then he talks about the five causes of judgment. That's the next section. And each one has its, its own little section. It begins and it ends the first one is betrayal. And that talks about the political uh, injustice of the people. He says, listen to the message the Lord has against you, O people of Israel, against the entire family I rescued from Egypt. From among all the families of the earth, I have been intimate with you alone. And that is why I must punish you for your sins. We have a relationship with God. Israel was called by God, bared His name, struggled with God. God gave them this name. They had the promises of God. They knew God. He had a relationship with them. All the other nations of the world would be judged for their unrighteousness, but Israel should have known better. Israel should have loved God better. But because it didn't, there was an extra wrath. I think we've all been betrayed in our lives by people. Some people were like distant, maybe a relative or something we didn't really like anyway, and they betray you. You're like, oh, I expected that. I'm still mad at them, but I expected it. But if you've had a best friend betray you, the close confidant, somebody you're really close to, doesn't that hurt worse? Isn't there extra wrath in your heart for that person? There was a different type of expectation God had for his nation, and it wasn't wrong. And he said the fact that they go on in this section, he talks about how, how in this unique relationship they should have known him. He revealed himself. He was loving to them. But because, because they didn't turn, they chose to lie themselves with other political things. With, they, they, they allowed their politics to influence their religion and not their religion to influence their politics. They allowed themselves to go and align with foreign governments and to rely upon them. And instead of looking to God, their father, they looked at culture and they wanted to just fit in instead of, instead of fitting with God. And God said, I can't just let that go. 
and you will be judged because you have betrayed me. And then he talks about the next one is exploitation. And in this section is actually kind of funny because God, he just he doesn't pull any punches. This is what he says. Listen to me, you fat cows living in Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the... He just called those women fat cows? Oh, yes, he did. He went there. In fact, in the text, it doesn't just say fat cows. It says the cows of Bashan, which is an area known for the excessively fat cows that are there. And he says, listen, you fat cows, you are oppressing people. That's why you're fat. And all he says this, you who are always calling to your husbands, bring us a drink. Say this, you oppress people to get all the wealth that you have. You enjoy all of these great things while you don't pay the workers that are working for you. You create all these taxes. You read through this. You create all these taxes, all these fines. You change the laws so that the poor are crushed and you can just glean off of everything from them. And you think that's okay? I see this, says God. I see what you are doing. And it's ugly. And you dare come to my temple wearing clothes that you bought because you ripped people off? God's not happy. And he says to these fat cows, he says, you know what? Your awesome mansions, you're not going to live in them. In fact, there are going to be so many holes in your walls that they're not even going to parade you out of the front gates when they take you into captivity. They're going to pull you through a wall and they're going to put a hook in your nose just like the cow you are. And you're going to die on the way to captivity. That's what's going to happen to you. I mean, God's not happy. And this whole idea with saying to her husbands, bring us a drink. Here's the thing. These are people that should have known him better. And these women who just loved luxury so much, they put all this pressure on their husbands to make sure that they had all this luxury. They didn't care how they got it. And the husbands, to make their wives happy, instead of being men of integrity, men of God, what do they do? They feared their wives, and they went out and oppressed other people so they could just make their wives happy. God's having none of it. And he says this exploitation, it's going to end. And you will not use your corrupt economy anymore in my name. And he talks about this in this portion, the covenant chastenings. Remember that whole idea where you have the the sovereign and the vassal states? Where God had a covenant with the people? Well, God did make a covenant with the people. In fact, twice he talks to the people and says, you're my people, these are the rules. If you want to be my people, this is how it's going to be. If you do these things, I'm going to be for you. There's a lot of blessings I'm going to give you. But if you don't, here's what's going to happen. And in this chapter, Amos goes through and he tells them how in every single place God has been true to his word. God said in in, in the covenant, he says, listen, if you fall away, I'm going to bring to you some bad things. I'm going to start with hunger and famine. And Amos talks about that. This is how God brought famine into their world. Well, Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Kings also talk of Leviticus and Deuteronomy talk about where God says this is what's going to happen if you don't follow me. First Kings talks about how the people in Israel endured famine. Drought. God said, listen, if you don't follow me and you don't listen to the, you bring hunger and you don't change, there's going to be drought. And here in the scripture, you see how God brought drought and the people didn't turn. And he says, all right, I'm going to bring blight. I'm going to bring mildew. I'm going to make it so that your, your crops don't grow. If you don't turn back to me. And the, God brought it. And the people didn't turn back to him. And he said he would. And he talks about locusts. We talked about that last week. 
And God brought said, listen, if, if you don't turn back to me, there will be locusts. Deuteronomy says this is what's going to happen. First Kings, we find out it happens. Amos talks about it here. God brought the locusts and we didn't turn. Last one was plagues. And a lot of times God talks about if you don't turn to me, you're going to, I'm going to bring plagues to your land. This should be a sign for you that you're getting close to the end. What happens? God brought the plagues and the people didn't turn. Amos is saying, listen, it's not like God has got this short temper. He's not doing something unjust. He's following the contract, the covenant that we agreed to. Look, he's filled every single thing. He's giving us warning after warning after warning. We have had all of our warnings. There are no more warnings. This economic exploitation is not going to be allowed to stand. It was a direct violation of God's heart and his covenant for Israel. He would no longer allow his people to exploit others and enjoy the benefits of his grace. It wasn't going to happen. God then brings about the third one, which is legal corruption. He says, you twist justice, making it a bitter pill for the oppressed. You treat the righteous like dirt. You know, justice is supposed to be that one place where everyone's treated fairly, right? We're supposed to be the medicine of the nations, right? Where, where even if you're poor and you're going against some powerful person, you can go to a courtroom and it's supposed to be evil, right? Or equal. Justice is supposed to have a blindfold on. But what had happened is the powerful people of Israel, they got their lobbyists to make sure that the laws were rewritten and were changed in such a way that all the benefits were for them. They rewrote the laws so that way everything was stacked in their favor so they could keep the oppressed oppressed and they could just glean as much wealth and power as they wanted to. They made justice a bitter pill. The poor people in their country would say they were being oppressed and knew it was wrong. The last place they would go to is a court because they would know, I can't afford the lawyers, I can't afford the system, I can't, and, and all the laws are written against me anyway. God was not happy about this. Can you imagine? Twisted justice. Later on, 510, he says, how you hate Honest judges, how you despise people who tell the truth. You trample the poor, stealing grain through taxes and unfair rent. Therefore, though you build beautiful stone houses, you will never live in them. That talks about just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right. The legal system was supposed to reflect righteousness. Without righteousness, there is no justice. In order for righteousness, for justice to really exist, our laws have to be built upon things that are right. If there is no righteousness, then the legal system is not just. It is a weapon and a tool of, of, of the powerful. And God was going to level it. In fact, in this section, there's this, there's this thing that the, the, the Jewish writers would do. It's called chiasm. It's its idea. It takes the, the Greek letter X, which is like... So it looks like an X. And, and so they use that idea of like a mirrored image. And what they would do is they repeat something and then repeat something else. It'd be different things. And you get down into the middle and it would repeat itself again. So at the very beginning of this chapter, there's a description of certain judgment. At the very end of this chapter, description of certain judgment. The next thing in is a call for individual repentance. And you can see near the end, call for individual repentance. There's an accusation of legal injustice. And then accusation of legal injustice. See how they mirror each other? 
Where you get to the center of this, when the chiasm thing, what it talks about, what's in the middle is what's really most important. It's the heart of the matter. It's a way that the writer could really point out, like underline, bold, say this is the heart of the matter. And it's a betrayal of God's sovereignty when you get into the middle of this chapter. And what it teaches us is something profound. Is that the heart of corruption is an offense against God's sovereignty. When we, as a people, think that somehow we can twist and contort the legal system to serve our own needs and to serve the needs of the powerful, that there is is a direct offense against God's sovereignty. Because God is righteous everywhere. And His law is law everywhere. And who are we to write laws that are unjust? And God brings it down to them and said, You have not... You have not respected my sovereignty, and now you'll be judged. Next thing he brings to them is this hypocrisy. The religious hypocrisy of the nation. He says, I hate your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals, your solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings, grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. God is out of the worship because God wasn't included in the worship. These people came to God wearing clothes that they, that they bought off of unjust laws that they used to oppress the poor people so they could look nice. And then they offered him choice meats and wines that were bought with funds that they used by exploiting the poor. God said, I'm not accepting this. I don't care how fancy your worship service is. I don't care how nice your, your songs sound like. I don't know how ornate all those things are. If you're not coming to me in righteousness, then why are you coming at all? God was not going to be bought off like these rich, powerful people of Israel. He didn't want it. He wanted true righteousness. In fact, the very next verse then, one that we memorize, it says, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. God doesn't want just us to show up and to look nice and to sing songs to Him and give Him the external, make it look like we're actually following Him. He's looking for something deeper. He's asking us for a heart. And He tells us, again, this is the second portion of this that has a chiastic uh, arrangement. And he talks about a religious hypocrisy. And he talks about the certainty of judgment, the accusation of, of religious hypocrisy. But the very heart of it is this, a call for individual repentance. You see, the heart of worship is a repentant soul. And the people had hypocrisy. The heart of hypocrisy are, is, is, a, is a people who have not personally repented. To go to God and to worship Him, but to really be the Lord of your own life, you're just going to God because you're hoping that maybe He'll give you more things for you. He's going to say things that make you comfortable. He's going to make you happy and make your life good. If you haven't turned to Him and said, you are my Lord and my Master, I'm following you. I'm turning away from my dead old ways. I'm turning to you to follow. Your your religion is hypocritical. And it's not accepted. God wasn't about to accept hypocritical worship. He is God Almighty, and He deserves our best, our whole hearts. 
And so he says, if you want to come to me, render your heart. Come to me in repentance. And that's where mercy is found. Last of the five judgments that God brings is because of arrogance. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you noble men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Boy, those are uncomfortable words for us, aren't they? You noble people of the foremost nation. You think you're so strong? You think you're too powerful? You think you've done all of this? He tells them right after this. He says, I tell you what, why don't you go, why don't you visit some of these other cities that were much bigger and more powerful than you've ever been and see how now they're wastelands. And they've been destroyed, and now they're just piles of rubble. So you think that you've created all of this wealth? You think you did it all by yourself? You think that you are beyond my judgment? You think you're too powerful for me? God says, you have gone too big for your britches. You are arrogant. You are prideful. You are boastful. As a people, socially, you are so prideful, you think that God's laws and everything apply to everybody else but you. And that just because you bear his name, you can get away with doing whatever you want. Arrogance. God has none of it. And he's going to bring judgment. So he brings five visions of judgment for the people. The very first one is locusts. And it's an interesting locust vision. He gives Amos, says this, this is what's going to happen. Is there's going to be the first harvest and then there's going to be a locust invasion unlike anything you've ever seen. It's going to be horrible. And... The timing of it is tell us why it's so bad. Because at that time, the king got the first tax. Now really, God should be getting the first of the harvest, but the king gets the first tax. That's to feed all of his soldiers and all of his, his stuff. So the people glean this first harvest, give it to the king. And if the locusts come after that, then there is nothing left for the people. It is the absolute worst possible time for a locust invasion to hit. And it was going to be so bad that it would even eat the seeds out of the ground. There was no way for the people to recover. And, and Amos would have known, because people experienced locust invasions from time to time, what would happen after that. Even a minor locust invasion was a big deal. Economically, you'd be pretty much devastated. There would be hunger. There would be, there would be plagues. There would be all kinds of bad things that hit the nation. It would be horrible. And Amos pleads to God. He says, God, please don't do this to the people. This is, this is too much. It will destroy us. And God relents. He's merciful. And he says, okay, I won't do that. And he brings a second vision. And this one is a fire, but it starts out with a, with a, a, a horrible drought. Everything dries up from the roots, everything. Seeds dry up, everything. Nothing can grow. And then everything is like tinder. And God said, I will bring a fire and it's going to sweep from the southernmost portion of our country all the way through the northernmost portion. And it will kill people. There will be nowhere to escape. It will move fast. It will be furious. Everything will be destroyed. And again, Amos begs God. He says, God, this is too much. Please don't kill us by fire like this. this is, you would kill everything. Please don't. And God relents. And so God gives him a third vision. And this time Amos doesn't even ask because God begins. But he's saying, listen, I've already made up my mind. This is what I'm going to do. And it says to thee, and the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I answered, a plumb line. And for you who don't know what a plumb line is, I had to look it up. It's a weight on a string. And it tells you what's straight up and down. Okay? And the Lord replied, I will test my people with this plumb line. And I will no longer ignore their sins. 
Their pagan shrines of your ancestors will be ruined and the temples of Israel will be destroyed and I will bring the dynasty of King Jeroboam to a sudden end. And it goes on to talk about how God said, I built this nation plum. This nation was straight when I built it and now it is off kilter. And if you've ever gone to a building and you've seen it off kilter, you built it right, but now that something's wrong with the foundation, it's all wacky and stuff, this just needs to be knocked down. And God said, I'm going to test my people. I've given them my word. I built the nation right. Let's just test to see if you're straight or not. Because if you're not straight, you're going to be destroyed. And King Jeroboam, though powerful, God said, was not straight. And he and his whole line would be destroyed along with the people that he led. It would have to be leveled because they were now crooked. And God then sends another vision of judgment. He says this, what do you see, Amos? And Amos replied, a basket full of ripe fruit. And the Lord said, like this fruit, Israel is ripe for punishment, and I will not delay their punishment again. Ripe fruit. You ever seen a basket of ripe fruit going like the farmer's market? It looks real good. That's the time to buy it. Because you go back a week later and what happens? Not so it's like awful. <laughs> right? This is talks about when God talks about the time is ripe. These people are ripe for, for judgment. It's like, I'm not going to delay. <laughs> right? Now is the time to strike. This, this is, you are ready. It's not like you, there's a couple things that need to happen before you're ready for judgment. Judgment, you are ready for it now. And he talks about in this section again how the people exploit the poor, how they misuse justice to, to oppress other people, and how their, the religion is hypocritical, and how they're prideful. And he says, all these ways, your sin is so full, you are just dripping with it. And you will be destroyed. In fact, the, in this section, this is a hard one to read, he talks about how there are going to be so many dead people that there's not even enough ground to bury them in. There's not even enough people to pick them up to bury them. And after the very few that may remain from this wipe their eyes from their tears and, and cry out to God, why have you done this? God's not going to answer. There will be a deafening silence from heaven. He is done talking to Israel. He is done. And they could go anywhere they wanted to. They could go to the ends of the earth if they wanted to and they would not find God because they abandoned Him. Now God was abandoning them. And He would never again speak to Israel. And He didn't. That's an amazing thing. The last of the, of the judgments, of the visions is this. It's the avenging Lord. He says, I saw a vision of the Lord standing beside the altar. And he said, strike the tops of the temple columns so the foundations will shake. Now think about that. You have a column. You have a foundation here. Bam, like a big old hammer. Just drives it into the ground and crushes the whole building. Bring down the roof on the heads of the people below. I will kill them with the sword and those who survive, no one will escape. God himself, I mean, this is about as clear of a vision as you can get. God himself says, I will kill you. I am out to avenge you. You have twisted my laws. You have become arrogant. You have oppressed the poor. You have misused judgment. You have just used justice to keep other people down. You have been hypocritical in your worship of me. You have been arrogant and prideful. I am bringing judgment. I will destroy you. And this is how God does it. He does it thoroughly. He says, you know what? We'll use your religion. We're going to bring the temple down on you. And if that doesn't kill you, then I will. 
And it doesn't matter where you go. You read the rest of the chapter. He says, if you fly, flee to a foreign country, I'll kill you there. Even if some other powerful country tries to protect you, I will kill you. And if I don't kill you with the sword, I'm going to kill you with the plague. And if I don't kill you with the plague, I'm going to kill you with slavery. And if I don't kill you with slavery, I'm going to kill you with hunger. He says, I will kill you, every single one of you, for what you have done. There is no escape from God's judgment. And it's pretty graphic. And it's terrifying. But it tells you something about God. He was not okay with the state of Israel. He was not okay with the state of the hearts of the people. And he said judgment would come. And it did. Assyria came down and destroyed the people, just like God says, and we have no idea what happened to Israel. The, the northern ten tribes disappeared, wiped off from the face of the planet. But this is what God says. I, the sovereign Lord, am watching this sinful nation of Israel, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth, which he did. He said, but I will never completely destroy the family of Israel, says the Lord. Now, isn't that amazing? That there's a remnant that God talks about that would be saved. And it talks about how he's going to use like a, like a, 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 a mesh that will catch the righteous. And they would be saved. And to understand the rest of this restoration of judgment, God talks about how he's going to save his remnant people. And they will still bear his name. And someday he's going to reestablish them in prosperity and in power and in righteousness and in truth. And they will never have an end to, to their peace. And, and no one will ever challenge them again. And he's talking about the time when Jesus came and he gave us the kingdom of God. And we, as Paul talks about in Romans, have been grafted into Israel. And there has always been that remnant of the faithful people. And God is calling His people back to Himself. And when Jesus returns, He will set up this world again where, where never again will there be famine or hunger or pain or judgment or fear or unrighteousness or wickedness or arrogance or any of those things. God will do it. Just as surely as He brought an end to wicked Israel, He would bring a new, he would bring a new peace and the remnant of Israel he would restore. To understand this, this is not something brand new. We have to look back a few chapters and see that all the way through this book, God is calling for repentance. Not of the nation. The nation was going to be judged, but for the people. And this is what he says to the individuals, the people that are part of this nation. He says, listen, you have to change. He says, do what is good and run from what is evil so that you may live. He already swore by his own name that Israel wasn't, but he's talking about us. The individuals, he said, do what is good, run from me, repent so that you may live. Then the Lord God of heaven's armies will be your helper just as you have claimed. The people of Israel always said, God is with us. We're God's people. And God said, well, you're not with me. But you can repent. Each individual, there was hope for the hearers of this message. It wasn't just doom and gloom for the sake of scaring. It wasn't just the roar to shake people so they would be terrified to be ripped to pieces. It was a roar to wake them up so they can say, we need to turn to God. And He can save us. See, just a, a few verses later, it says, hate what is evil, love what is good. Turn your courts into halls of justice. Perhaps even yet the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercy on the remnant of His people. Who is having mercy on? The remnant. We see the very first thing that the justice, repentance starts inside. Turn to Lord your God. But then also it has to express itself somehow. Turn our courts into to halls of justice. 
how we need, live needs to reflect the repentance that we have in our hearts. We cannot be a people of exploitation, of twisting the law, and all of these awful things. He says, listen, live like you love me. Live like you love me. Let justice roll on like a river. Let righteousness like a never-failing stream. This is God's call for us. And there is restoration. Here's the application as we get to the end of this book. The first thing we see is that God hates exploitation, corruption, hypocrisy, and arrogance. He hates them. You know, these are often very close to things that we call social justice issues, and they make us very uncomfortable as people because issues of social justice have been misused and abused in the past. But this is not a political thing. We understand the very heart of God. He hates exploitation. He hates it. He hates corruption. He's not okay with it. Hypocrisy. He's not okay with arrogance. We need to come to Him in righteousness and truth. This is what our God is about. We understand, too, that God calls us then to righteousness, to justice, to faithfulness, and to humility. This is how He wants us to live. Now, I'm grateful for Jesus Christ who gave us His grace, that we are saved by grace because none of us have been completely righteous or just or faithful or humble. That's an amazing thing, that we don't have to face this judgment because Jesus faced the judgment for us. But the mercy we find in Christ is not an excuse then to live according to the dead ways that put him on the cross. We need to flee from these awful things of exploitation and corruption, hypocrisy and arrogance. We need to turn to God in righteousness and justice and faithful and humility. We need to live like we've actually repented. We need to render our hearts to God because they belong to him. We also see this, that God judges fairly. He redeems the repentant. God is not unjust. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't turn a blind eye to wickedness. He doesn't. And we have to make sure if we read this book, remember it was written to God's people who were acting in very ungodly ways. And though we are in a era of grace and that we have Christ, we are God's people and we cannot allow ourselves to be so complacent in the grace that we fail to live our lives for the God who saved us. God redeems the repentant. And that's what He's looking for also in us. Now as I bring this message to a close, I know it's not the the warmest, fuzziest of messages. That's what the prophets do, right? That's what they do. They prod us. They make us uncomfortable. They show us the things in our life and our world that are broken. Because of God's mercy and love, He wants us to fix them. God will bring judgment to this world. It's already been written. He swore by Himself. He is coming back someday. He will come back. But there is time for the repentant. And so as we bring this portion to a close, and we say, what do we need to do? I have some ideas of how we can come to God, being living the lives of repentance that He asks for. So if you take out your connection card, on the back side of it, I have some ideas, some things that maybe we can do to start or to continue lives of repentance and to walk away from the dead and the evil things of this world and culture. The first is to memorize Amos 5.24. You know, the amazing thing is, he says, I don't want your empty worship, or I don't want all that, the big show, but he says this, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's what he asks for us in our lives. 
So don't just memorize that, but think about in your daily life. How is justice flowing forth from you? Is it just to, to, to do what's easy or to do what is right? God calls us to do what is right, even if it's not the standard in the industry to do what is right. God says, I want you to do what is right. Let justice roll from you. We've seen streams kind of pop up in our, our yards and stuff here recently. Nothing stops them, does it? You try to plug them up with things that just keeps flowing. Yeah, that's what God wants righteousness to be like in our lives. It just flows from us, righteousness and justice to come from us as individuals and us together corporately as a church, as a people of, of God. We need to be the cure for a world that is so dry. A world full of exploitation. A world of corruption. A world of arrogance and hypocrisy. But God says, I want you to flow these things out of your life. Where you see corruption, you resist it. Where you see exploitation, you walk away and you resist it. You fight it. Where you see arrogance, you, you, you humble yourself. You know, memorize this passage. Make it part of, of who you are. This is the life that God has called us to and it's a rich and fulfilling life. It's so wonderful and refreshing and the world needs it desperately and this is what God calls us to. So maybe what you do this week is take that first step and remind yourself and your spirit daily what is it that God looks for? Righteousness, is justice. Let it flow. Just let it flow. Maybe what you want to do is read Amos. I know it's not a comfortable book but maybe you need to read it to go through. I think of all of the prophets is probably one of the most that is, <laughs> that is really, really... Uh, being applicable for our current day and age, isn't it? And you want to see how to live a righteous... What is God's expectation in a wicked world? Read Amos. Let his message speak to you. How about this? Pray. Maybe your prayer this week is to repent. Render your heart to God. And it's not just... Don't just feel bad about the things that you've done. Jesus paid for them. But now live in a new way. And when you fail... Turn back. Thank you for the grace of Jesus. But don't just lean on that so you can keep walking in bad ways. Lean upon the, the, the grace of Jesus and then take those next steps of righteousness. Get back up and start living like you love God. Maybe that's what you do this week. If you're looking at your life and there are things that just have you and you're just not living for Him and you put Him in second place or third place in your life, God says, repent, turn to Him. Render your heart to Him. That's where the heart of true worship is. And that's where grace and mercy and peace are found. Maybe this week as you, you begin to just daily repenting, picking up your cross, following Him, follow after Jesus. Maybe what you need to do is maybe to engage. The people of Israel, the righteous people, were maybe kind of scared because there was a culture that they were in that was wicked. And wicked people abhor honest judges, don't they? They hate it when somebody tells the truth or says, your laws may be legal, but they're not just. That's not a nice thing to say. Or you know what? The way that we're doing business is exploiting, exploiting people, and that's not okay. That's not acceptable in our culture. But sometimes we need to stand for God. And we need to stand for what is right. And maybe the thing is to take a stand against the injustices that we see in our lives and our world. And to actually engage in what some would call social justice, but I think is this, biblical justice. 
bringing dignity to those that don't have it, bringing peace to those that have, don't have it, bringing a voice to those that do not have it, to identify with the people that Jesus identified with. Maybe that's the challenge, is to get out of our comfort zone and to go and to actually live lives of repentance and justice. Maybe that's what you need to begin with this week. Maybe that begins with this decision. I'm going to have to get out and do something. Maybe there's something else. I didn't think at all. Maybe God's speaking to you and he's saying, this is what I need you to do. And write it down so I can pray for you. Maybe there's another decision you have to make or a prayer request you have. Let us know. We'll be praying for you all week long. Uh, it's one of the great ways that we love to serve you. In just a minute, we're going to take our offering. And as the baskets are passed, I'd ask that you just drop this in the offering basket along with your tithes. And uh, let that be a, an offering of yourself back to God. All right, well, let's pray for our tithes and our offerings. Uh, now, Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we are challenged by your word. We really are. Um, certainly it's not comfortable to hear, and I'll tell you it's not comfortable to preach, but it's good. It is good because you are good. You are righteous. I thank you that in this world you are bigger than the, than the powerful people, even us. You're pow- more powerful than, than our, our injustices. You can, you can judge corruption accurately, and you can bring righteousness. And I thank you, Father, too, for that amazing promise that for the repentant, there is grace and there is mercy. And there is restoration along with redemption. And so, Father, help us to be a repentant people. Let us come to you in fullness, rendering our hearts to you in completeness. And may your righteousness, Father, and your justice, may it flow from us, roll like a river like a never failing stream and Father we pray that you would take these tithes, these offerings and these commitments and you would use them to build your kingdom in our hearts and in this town and in this world we ask this in Jesus name